listening to Shoot It Now, your weekly podcast about indie filmmaking and big-budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another Shoot It Now podcast. My guests today are a couple of filmmakers that have made a spectacular film that is detailed in its approach that is almost a lost art form, but yet manages to achieve something old school and stand out in its very unique way. And to make the film more challenging and difficult to produce, it's set in World War II. Andrew Muir and David Ross, welcome to Shoot It Now. Thanks very much for having us on, Craig. Hey, Craig, thanks for having us. Well, Andrew, you are the writer-director of the film Turning Tide, and David, you are the producer and VFX supervisor for the film. Perhaps I should set up the storyline, which the synopsis reads, Growing up in wartime Scotland, 10-year-old David McCalla's life takes a dramatic turn when a massive German air squadron flies over his home on their way to a bombing raid, which escalates when they are intercepted by British Spitfires, resulting in a spectacular air battle in which one of the enemy bombers is shot down from the sky. Well, congratulations to both of you for what you have achieved with this award-winning short film. You are both Scottish filmmakers. Andrew, let's start with you first. Not an easy project to realise for a whole raft of reasons. Tell us what attracted you to write this period piece and how long from beginning to end it took for both of you to realise. Well, the story really goes back to myself and David, really. And we've been friends for a very long time, all the way back to high school. Even back then, I was sort of making my own films with friends and David was very interested in model making and creating visual effects shots. So it was kind of a conversation that ran for years that, you know, we should really combine our skills at some point and make something together. So it was around about 2013 that we sort of both had an opening in, in what we were doing at the time. And we thought, well, let's go for it. Let's do it. And we talked around a few different ideas. And at one point we thought maybe we would do a space film. And then we eventually settled on the kind of World War II concept. But we knew that we wanted to create something really visual and sort of, you know, visually epic. Um, so that's kind of where it came from. You say visually epic. You can say that. Filmmakers often do say, well, you know, we want to make a period piece. We're going to set this in World War II. We want to make it grand and epic. But the, the actual execution, that's a different thing, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's it. Well, we initially started laying everything on the table and sort of had a discussion between us of like, well, what do we have to hand? We're both based in London now, unless you've got real kind of money behind you it's quite hard to get things made here because permits there's you know everything's more expensive here so we thought well we'll go back to our roots we'll go back to the town where we grew up in Scotland we know it really well we have friends and family there that can be happy to pitch in and help us yeah so we were able to get a lot of local support there and we started asking around we managed to get a an old vintage 1930s car that someone in a nearby town brought over for free and they were just happy to appear in the film so it was a lot of things like that a lot of happy accidents that kind of came together which gave us the the confidence to do it i think if, if people hadn't been quite so accommodating with us the film probably wouldn't have gotten made 
David, as mentioned, you are the producer and VFX supervisor for this award-winning short film, Turning Tide. The visual effects were created using traditional practical techniques rather than CG. So the performance of the RAF Spitfires and German planes was captured in camera with models that were built in different scales to achieve the dogfight that you wanted. One of the reasons it's unusual to do this these days is because of the meticulous time and attention to detail for building the model planes versus CG. Now, I'm curious to ask you this question. Is there a ratio on this film? Is there a ratio of time comparison between the two, i.e., is the model building a, say, 10 to 1 longer time frame versus CGI? difficult to put an exact quantity on you know what takes longer and um, cgi versus practical but i think it depends what the task is for anything involving motion you know animation of the planes for example it's much much easier to do in cgi it's very quick because you have complete control and you're not fighting you know gravity or or anything like that whereas when you're trying to do a piece of movement or animation physically uh, with a model you've you've got all these issues you have you know for us, we, we shot um, the planes and rigs, which at times were involved the plane hanging in wires. So then we'd have wobbling planes and wires to deal with. And then, of course, you only get one shot at it. So if you make a mistake, you have to go back and do the whole thing again. You know, on that side of it, CGI is much, much quicker and faster. On the other hand, um, with CGI, you're trying to make something completely digital look photographic and real. That can be quite time consuming. You have to do renders that take a lot of time. You have to take several attempts quite often until you find a way of making it look real. And then even when you've rendered the CG, you have to spend time compositing it. And even with all that time spent, it can be a challenge to, to get it to look convincing. So that's the time-consuming aspect of CGI. On the other hand, with, with models, you know, you don't have to worry about it looking real because it is real. It's a physical object with real light on it and all the reflections and the the glints and the flares and so on that you get, the imperfections, that's all real. So that was the real reason we went with using models. But you're, you're certainly right in what you're saying. It, it did take us a lot longer than it would have uh, to do it with CGI. I think mainly because the sequence we were making did involve a lot of animation and a lot of performance of the planes doing maneuvers and things. It was tricky to put together in that way. I think it's very clever the way that you have handled the the camera movement with the puppetry of the model airplanes, which has created that illusion of the planes flying. Because as you say, it's in camera, you are able to capture all of the textures. And that's a, that's a key word, textures of the practical miniatures. Because you're not having to create that in CGI. As you say, it's real. You then have the lighting and the reflections. You've obviously got to set all of that up. I uh, want to come to you, Andrew, on that particular subject because you're the one behind the camera. Obviously, this was probably a really big learning curve for you eh, as a filmmaker watching David and his puppetry at work here with these planes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, a lot of conversations in the beginning of exactly how we would pull off these shots because, you know, we wanted to try, I think you just mentioned there, you know, shots with moving cameras with multiple airplanes in them is quite a tricky thing to pull off. 
back in the day, you would usually use something called motion control, where you could program the movement of the camera and, you know, it could repeat the pass over and over again. And, you know, you could get all your elements of the shot. We sort of had to come up with workarounds and different ways of doing it. I think the biggest learning curve for me was lighting planes when we shot in a sort of a big dark studio and we actually put a red screen as you know, you would usually use a green screen, but we used a red screen, you know, to contrast with the color of the planes. You know, obviously we're trying to give the illusion that these airplanes are out in the bright sunlight out in, you know, the big blue sky because it can very easily look like it's up in space if you've got really hard black shadows on the aircraft. So we just had a lot of fill, a lot of lights just had to try and make it as bright as possible. And I never shot miniatures before, so it was a, a massive learning curve. Yeah, quite pleased how it came out in the end. And David, on a subconscious level, the viewer, I think, if they're like me, they're watching the film saying to themselves, this looks just so real. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit more about the reflections and the textures, because this is what is working on a subconscious level on the viewer. You just wouldn't have got the same outcome if you were working mm. in CG. Well, thank you. I'm glad to hear that. Um, you're never completely sure when you're making it um, if it looks as real as you hope it will, because you, you're scrutinizing it every day. So you never get to see it completely fresh. Yeah, I mean, the shadows and textures, our original plan was to film all the planes outside because you really can't beat that. If you're filming the a real model outside, ideally even against the real sky, then it's complete reality. You know, you can't argue with that. That's how certain shots in Dunkirk recently were done, for example, with models in the sky. In the end, we, we realized for certain types of shots and certain types of maneuvers, there's just no way we'd be able to have the control outside. We had two shoots. We had a, an outdoor shoot, and that's where you see the real close-ups of the planes. So, for example, there's a shot where we see a close-up of the Heinkel bomber and the engine explodes. That was shot outdoors um, because then you're getting the full reality. We even used the real um, sky from behind the plane. But then we, we did have to have an indoor shoot as well, like I say, to have uh, the control over the puppetry. And that's where Andy had to, to obviously make a good job of lighting it, which he did. We took the models outdoors beforehand to see how the light behaved. I think Andy even took some of those photos and cut them out in Photoshop and put them in front of a red background. <laughs> and also it means when you are adding any extra CG elements into the scene, you have this perfect reference. So I think it when you have you know, real elements that you filmed, it pushes up the quality of everything else around it as well, because you have to try and match that level of reality to make everything else fit in with it. And Andrew, this is a low-budget film. As we say, there are these really big screen looks. Uh, the film has done really well at film festivals. It's won awards. I believe that you went to the famous Pinewood Studios for a function where the film won best post-production. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Yeah, that was fantastic. I mean, that was one of the early things that we submitted the film to. They were holding a, a first-time filmmaker showcase. So we submitted to that. And then when we got word through that we were going to have this tour around Pinewood Studios and they were going to um, screen all of our films in the John Barry Cinema as well. It was great. I remember we were getting sort of shown around the lots and they were saying, oh, you know, we're constructing the Millennium Falcon behind there for the next Star Wars. And then we saw part of a big Disney movie being shot as well. So it's obviously an iconic place in film history. That was uh, quite a moment. This project had taken us to Pinewood. I remember seeing a display cabinet with some Oscars in it. And I remember seeing the Oscar won by Derek Meddings for his work on Superman. Derek Meddings was a an inspiration to me growing up as a special effects man of the time. So 
those those kind of moments have, have been nice from where the film's taken us. And that's the point, isn't it? Because when you make a film, you don't know where the film is going to take you. You don't know who is going to see the film. There's a whole lot of things happen once you release the film. Pinewood Studios, when you, on day one, are shooting this film, that is like never entering your head. No, exactly. Yeah, you're not you're not thinking about that at all. Um, you're, in fact, at the beginning, you're just wondering if you're even going to be able to finish the film, <laughs> because you know there's so many factors that are out of your control, and there's always obstacles along the way. You know, with any film, but when your resources are min- minimal, there's not uh, much margin for error. So your big relief is just to get the film made, and then when the film gets well received or takes you to events at Pinewood, we're obviously over the moon. The other exciting thing that happened was um, a trip to Rome. The composer of, of our film soundtrack, uh, Marco Cusconi, an Italian composer, he submitted the soundtrack into a, a competition in Italy and it was accepted to be performed in Rome as a package of some of the best Italian film music. So we got to go over to Rome and hear the soundtrack, orchestral score, which in itself you know, surpassed their expectations. But now here we were in Rome hearing it performed live by an orchestra. From where we started off, that, that, that was pretty unbelievable. And I want to talk about the music. Again, sometimes on a short, there isn't much scale for achieving a great score, but not the case here. The music composer, Marco Cascone, has managed to achieve something really special with not only what he wrote, but also the fact that he was able to bring in live instruments for the score as well. Uh, Firstly, let's talk about how that relationship came about between working with you, Andrew, and the way that the final rollout of the score was delivered. Yeah, so um, we just couldn't fathom that when we started out. We were basically, when we first started shooting the film, we didn't have anything in the way of funding or anything like that. We just were doing it with a bit of savings out of our own pockets. Essentially, once we wrapped the live action, we launched a Kickstarter campaign, which gave us the funds to sort of let us push the film forward into post-production so that we could do the effects and the music and the sound design. Yeah, Marco contacted us after we launched the Kickstarter. Um, He'd seen it. He really liked what he saw and and he sort of kept in touch with us over the next few months as we were doing the miniature shoots, sort of saying, you know, when you guys finish, I'd love to have the chance to write the score. So we always remembered that. And when the time came, we got back in touch with him and he essentially said, you know, I'm ready. I'll, I'll drop everything and I'll do it as if that wasn't enough when we kind of said to him that we'd really like to record it with live musicians because we were doing a film that was quite sort of nostalgic and shooting in a traditional way. We wanted that sort of old school vibe. He was great and he plays in orchestras himself and so he was able to pull in a lot of favours with fellow musicians. This was all done over Skype as well. We never actually met him face to face. The first time we did meet him was the concert that David mentioned in Rome. So that was a great moment that we were seeing our film played with a full orchestra on the big screen and we were finally meeting our composer as well. Yeah, really memorable experience. And just tell us a little bit more about that experience, because it was something special in Rome with the prestigious Roma Film Orchestra and what they were playing the the score and projecting images or were they playing part of the film overhead? Yeah, well, they, they played a sort of edited version of the film. So they were playing the music 
to the images on the big screen. Yeah, like I say, it was it was one of those moments where you've got to pinch yourself and, and sort of say, Is, did that really happen? But yeah, it was fantastic. And I wonder how much fun it's been hearing the feedback from people who have been talking about the film and the way that it looks, given that it is a small budget. It's nice to get it out in front of the kind of online audience. It's great as you're showing it with other filmmakers and you're talking to them and getting their feedback. But it's also nice just to get it out in front of a mass audience who aren't necessarily filmmakers as well, who are maybe going to just see it, you know, fresh and, and sort of enjoy it as a film. So it's been really great and really interesting. And even, the you know, the numbers it's, it's getting on YouTube at the moment, we had no idea it was, I think it's up to 100, 150,000 views or something like that. We had no idea that it would take off in the way it has. And David, what about your friends? Because it took such a long period of time to bring all of this together because it is labour intensive. How many times were your friends saying, David, when is this film going to be released? Oh, yeah, that, that was our life for quite a period of time. <laughs> I think I hope people now that have seen the, the making of the documentary, they, they can see what maybe why it took so long. But... <laughs> It's, it's a time-consuming process. You just have to sort of stay focused on the goal and stay patient, I think. That, that was really the only way we could do it because, you know, we couldn't afford to employ a lot of people to work on it or throw money at it to get shortcuts. So the only way around it was to spend the time doing it. And, you know, there's a lot of effects in the film as well that took time that you don't even see. With it being a period piece, there was things that happened on the shoot that were out of control. And there was also modern day objects, wheelie bins and satellite dishes that all needed removed. So at one point we had a team of students working on that as well. So even with the help, it took us considerable periods of time. And you decided to do the behind the scenes look of what it took to make the film. Now, most short films are so concentrated in making the film that there isn't time to do this. Again, the way that you have put this together is a great companion piece and feels more like an extension to the film than a separate entity. Uh, David, this really pays tribute to the painstaking effort that you went to for creating the models and showcasing a lost art form to a generation of young filmmakers who I'm sure will be inspired to look at their own projects with the practical option of models versus CG. How has that feedback been from other filmmakers regarding that? Yeah, it's been it's been interesting. It's been an interesting conversation to have. You can't argue that CGI isn't the way forward. It's it's incredibly powerful when it can do pretty much anything. But I think certainly when you're on a budget as we were, particularly if you're on a budget or if you're trying to capture something that you want to feel a bit more, you know, grounded in reality, practical effects and miniatures still have a, a place, I think. You know, we've seen that recently in big films like First Man um, that use miniatures against LED screens or Dunkirk that use miniatures, remote control miniatures up in the sky. I think there's times as well where it can be the easiest option. We had one effect, for example, in the film where we used the foreground miniature technique of a, a model car and we lined that up in the foreground so that it looked like it was part of the scene. It required almost no post-production work at all. And those are the things that, you know, if, if you know about those techniques, it's an option. You can use that in conjunction, in conjunction with CG or post-compositing. You know, it's, it's part of the toolkit. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th I think it's... There is an, an element of it getting lost just because, you know, CG is the go-to tool nowadays, so it can easily be forgotten. 
And Andrew, what was the reason for the behind the scenes to put that together? Because again, it takes effort. You made such a, a really nice job of it. But what was your thinking in terms of putting that together? Well, initially, because we were just shooting the film, you know, we, we basically didn't think beyond the live action. We didn't even consider the music and the visual effects and stuff. We just thought if we can get the live action shot, then maybe we can do a crowdfunding campaign later to, you know, maybe get some more funding to finish the film. So the idea behind shooting behind the scenes footage was really for that. And we didn't really have anyone specifically on the set to do that. You know, we only had four or five people on set most days. So it was just a case of people getting their phones out and just saying, okay, shoot a little bit here, shoot a little bit there. And then we can maybe use this later on to cut together, you know, a video for our, for some crowdfunding. After we were able to finish the film, we thought, well, we do have all this footage and we have the, you know, the before and afters of the visual effects shots. So we thought, well, and, and it was also a running joke throughout the whole process, you know, when we were having some really <laughs> dark days uh, you know, when we're wondering how long this was going to take, we sort of thought, well, th this making of might be more interesting than the film itself. So let's just try and capture as much as we can. And there's a real polish to the way that you've executed this short film. And it's a good lesson to indie filmmakers in doing the basics well. It looks very well shot listed and worked out with detail in what you were going for. So, Andrew, explain that process of execution with shot listing and presumably storyboarding. Yeah, I mean, I wish I had a, a great answer for you there, but the, the, the first shoot was actually so chaotic. We were sort of shooting it in a documentary fashion and desperately hoovering up the shots, you know, that we could. Um, the weather the, the first time around we attempted to shoot was, was really awful. And by the end of it, we were having to rush so much and trying to get scenes completed that it really came down to the editing in a lot of cases where I just kept the camera running a little bit longer. And, and there's some shots in the film in there that weren't even intended to be you know in those moments but because of that we had to go back a second time and i knew then you know we'd been able to assemble a cut of the film and we could see what was working and what wasn't so that gave me a little bit more time to you know react to the edit and so when we went back and, and reshot some of the scenes with better weather i had a clearer idea then yeah, there wasn't really a, a firm storyboarding. We, we storyboarded the visual effects sequence pretty clearly and we built CG animatics for those. But in terms of the live action, it was, you know, shot very guerrilla style on the day. And the performances, they were very controlled. Of course, everything is on the shoulders of the young boy. Nothing seems to be rushed and the beats are obvious to see. Often less experienced actors can make movements and gestures that can be distracting to the scene. But the actors, especially the boy, was very still within his performance, which adds to the tension and isn't distracting. How were you able to work with the young boy and the other cast members to achieve that level of stillness? Yeah, well, we were we were so lucky with all of our cast. I mean, Patrick, the the young boy who who's in you know the, the start of the film. We just had a few casting sessions around youth acting clubs. He was one of the first first boys we auditioned. Actually, I think we auditioned about twenty or so. You know, there's very little dialogue in the film, so we didn't have a script that they could sort of memorize. We ended up just doing an improvisation session. Patrick was was brilliant, and you you could you know he really put himself into the scene. The other actors, the the pilot is played by Neil Roxburgh and Marianne McIver, who plays the mother. We did a search online for local actresses, 
And when she got back in touch with us, she was from Trun, the town as well. So we were all very much a local team. It was nice, you know, like I say, myself and Dave are based in London nowadays, but it was nice to go back to our hometown and just have this local team, local casting crew and, and make the film together. Let's talk about the experience of raising your post-production finishing money. Can you talk through your experience on Kickstarter of the process and what you learnt and especially anything that you would do differently if you went through that process again? Sure. We kind of looked at other successful Kickstarters that had been on the platform before. There was one called Kung Fury, where a guy went out and started shooting something low budget and then launching it onto the Kickstarter platform. I think he got like a million or something ridiculous to finish it. So we kind of took lessons from things that projects like that did. We didn't want to be in a situation where we were just, you know, all we had was a script. And we thought, you know, that would be a bit of a stretch to ask people for money to help us make our script. You know, we haven't made anything before. So we knew that we at least wanted to back up what we were saying with visuals. It gave us a goal as well when we were shooting the, the live action to make it look as good as possible so that we could launch a Kickstarter. But obviously shooting the film in, in our, our small town in Scotland, we were able to get a lot of local support there. And we shared on social media and that quickly went mini viral in the town. And um, I think me and Dave were actually stopped in the street once, walking down the street by a, a guy saying, are you guys, the guys making the World War II film? So it was kind of funny that way. We got a lot of, a lot of home support. And then obviously because we were shooting the miniatures in a sort of old school fashion, we were able to share it on social media. And they also were interested in the project and backed us. Yeah, I guess I would say to anyone who, who's thinking of launching one is to kind of find your niche and find the, the small pockets of people that would really be interested. Because if it, if it is up their alley, then they will back you. And we were really lucky with, you know, the support that we got. And people after watching the film are, are wanting more. Is that the experience from, from the people that you know? People saying, oh, gee, I wish this film was just a little bit longer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've actually, I mean, we've seen a few of the comments and things as well. I hope there's a part two. Yeah, we were we were always trying to cut the film down as well in the process. We were told by a lot of people that, you know, to get into film festivals and things like that is a short film. You want to make it as, as short as possible. So we were always concerned that it might be running a little bit too long. We've sort of joked around about what the sequel could be. You know, maybe it's a present day story where the, the two characters meet again. <laughs> Uh, or maybe the boy breaks the pilot out of jail or something like that. But yeah, yeah, we might have to think about that one. Well, the film is called Turning Tide, and we will put up the links in the show notes for you to watch both the film and behind the scenes. Andrew and David, congratulations again for what you have managed to achieve with your World War II film. I know that we'll be hearing from you in the future, which will be exciting to see, and good luck with everything in London. And thanks again for coming on to Shoot It Now. Thanks very much, Craig. It's thanks. been great. Thanks, Craig. It's been great to speak to you. You've been listening to Shoot It Now with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.